Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, God's Dietary Laws, or What is Good for Food? Reg. Today, I'm here to talk to you about something that is a high priority to every person in this room, something near and dear to all our hearts, food. <laughs> now, we may not all be gourmands, but uh, this group does love food. Just come to any of our potlucks, if you don't believe that. Some have even been known to schedule their trips around uh, where, they're, where and what they're going to eat, particularly if it's Mexican food or steaks. Um, However, not all things that are commonly labeled as food are actually fit for human con uh, consumption. So how do we know what is good for us to eat and what is not? Fortunately, we have at our disposal um, our cre in Creator's Instruction Manual, the Bible, which tells us, among other things, exactly which foods are fit for human consumptions. All we have to do is know where uh, to look and today, of course, to read a lot of labels. Church of God members are very, very proficient at reading labels. Like, for example, Ron pointed out to me just yesterday that all beef hot dogs are sometimes encased in pure pork casings. Kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Okay, so we have to read labels very, very carefully. Reading the fine print and reading between the lines for often what is being said as well as for what is not. If you're coming into this way of life from the outside worldly churches, then that transition in diet is not always easy. On February 15th, uh, of this year, 2014, I commemorated my 30th anniversary of submitting to this way of life. That means that for the first half of my life, I spent outside the church, and the second half, in counting, now within the church. During that worldly half, among other things, I explored every philosophy and religion on the planet from, ancient, from antiquity up until the modern scientific view of the world. And to finance my education during my high school and college years, I worked as a cook in many restaurants, uh, cooking everything from sandwiches to baked goods to buffet dinners to gourmet entrees, ranging in cuisines, both kosher and non-kosher, steak and barbecue, American Southern, Chinese, Mexican, Italian, French, Cajun, everything under the sun, I could cook it, basically. All right. Of these, the cuisine that was most requested by my non-church friends was Cajun which is also the least kosher. For the Cajun, well, eat anything, well, don't bite him first. And some of them, what do? <laughs> As well. I.e., instead, indeed, there be no critter exempt from the Cajun boiling pot. Okay, anything goes into the Cajun boiling pot. And if that critter be just a little bit slimy, well, that's okay, too. A little bit of wine will take that slime right off. Okay, you know how Cajun measures wine, don't you? He doesn't measure it in cups or ounces. He measures it in seconds. Seconds, uh-huh. The Cajun cook him, grabbed that wine bottle by his neck, and then he looked at his wristwatch. A 15 seconds worth ought to be about right. And whatever they'll go into the pot, go into the cook. 
Aye. All right. So not in, not in cups or in ounces, but in seconds. That's how Cajon measures his wine. All right. Out of self-preservation, I think, more than anything else, I suppose. After she saw some of my Cajun dishes, Maxine revealed to me the dietary laws. I think it was really out of self-preservation more than anything else. I could always count on Maxine to point out whenever and wherever I was wrong. I think she is blessed with the gift of exhortation, if you don't. (laughs) Now, one of the first areas that I obviously needed to correct was my dietary and cooking habits. For when I first came into the church, I was as green as a leprechaun. I did not know anything about the dietary laws. I did not know anything about the feast days, about the Sabbath, about tithing, about the nature of God, anything, really. So I was green as it could be. First, she showed me Leviticus 11. And I say, huh. And then she gave me some articles about the scientific evidence against eating uh, non-kosher meats. And I say, uh-huh. And then she showed me uh, uh, Deuteronomy 14. And I say, huh, again. And after you know, three occasions of being exposed to this, there's got to be something to it. So my little mind go work, click, 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 work, click, 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 click. And then when it stopped going, click, 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 then it stopped and I say, okay. And I change all my recipes. Uh, it doesn't take much for me to make that kind of change. All right, uh, seafood gumbo became beef or chicken gumbo. When I say seafood gumbo, that's either crab or shrimp or crayfish or all, all sorts of ugly things that go into the pot. Okay, because anything goes in that Cajun boiling pot. Okay, seafood gumbo becomes uh, beef or chicken gumbo. Crab meat au gratin became turkey au gratin. Bodan became a pepper stuffed with rice, etc. Now, these problems, I said, presented no real problem for me because I wasn't really all that fond of pork or selfish anyway. So, but for people who must have their morning bacon and sausage with their eggs, who relish ham and cheese sandwiches or pork chops or spare ribs, or who delight in shrimp from the barbie, uh, such a change can be taxing. Now, for the benefit of all of our recently baptized members, all of our young people, as I found out thanks to Curtis, that uh, who may not with whom it may not have registered in previous years, and for all of our veterans who may need a refresher course on this basic doctrine, we're going to look at it today. For all of us, today we're going to explore what are the dietary laws, what do they say, and what do they not say. Okay, so let's see. First, okay, it's on. Click, click, click. Oh, okay, we went too far. Is it? Huh? I need to go back. There, okay, there we go. All right, there we go. All right, so first, let's acknowledge that. There it comes, okay. Let's acknowledge first. that our Creator has set before us a bounteous table of blessings with more than enough varieties to satiate even the most discriminating palate. However, He instructs us about what is suitable for to eat and what is not. In fact, the very first commandment, notice that, the very first commandment that God gives to Adam identifies what is good for food and what is not. 
God said, Genesis 1, 29, uh, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, uh, and every tree which is fruit of the uh, uh, in which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you I, this shall be for meat. Okay? And uh, so that's, he tells them what he can eat, basically here. And then um, uh, Genesis two fifteen to 17, And the Lord took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but you may not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, it shall surely die. So notice the pattern. God tells us both what we can eat and what we can't eat. Now, some people use Genesis 1.29 as the justification for not eating mushrooms. But that basically says what we can uh, it says what we can eat. It does not exclude mushrooms, by the way, for Matthew and Renee or whoever, or Sherry or whoever as well. Okay. Second, the second thing we need to look at is that uh, God, God has created animals with a purpose, and that purpose being to, um, specific to each of the species. Some of the animals were indeed created for food. Some of them were created for beasts of burden, some as scavengers, some as nature's garbage scowls, the cleanup man, the garbage man, some were, such as beavers, as landscaping uh, builders and environmental engineers, effectively. Some, such as bees and hummingbirds, were nature's pollinators. Some, such as plankton, actually produce oxygen. Some provide fertilizer. Some as predators to keep the populations under control. By the way, did you know that the pig is not native to North America? It, is, it was originally an African and uh, uh, Euro-Asian uh, animal that was uh, imported on boats over to uh, North and South America. It's not native. What happened there? It moved ahead of me. Okay, anyway, all right. Um, I get carried away with the clicker now. Um, so the pig was not native to, to uh, the, the North America. It was an import here. As a result, it has no natural predator here in the, in the Western world, in the Western Hemisphere. So that means they are running wild with no, nothing to really curb their growth. Uh, each animal has a purpose. As Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, to everything there is a time and a season and a purpose under heaven. But they weren't all made for food. They weren't all made for food. Hence, the cell structure of the animals would often need to be different in order to accomplish each animal's purpose. And such a cell structure may make the animal's flesh unfit for human consumption. For example, in some cases, like the toads of South Africa, even touching them can cause poison. There's a PBS uh, documentary on venom that's wonderful. If you haven't seen it, go, uh, I heartily recommend it, about venom. If you touch even or let alone taste or touch or eat any of these frogs, it can be deadly, deadly poison. Uh, despite some of the Mississippi boys uh, who are toad suckers, they would actually uh, suck on toads and get the high from the, the resin that was in there. Anyway, that's another story. That, I said, we're talking about Cajun people now. All right. Obviously, we can't know at a glance whether or not the cell structure makes the flesh unfit for food. But our loving Father has provided us um, 
with uh, some external characteristics that make it relatively easy for us to identify animal, which animals were intended for food and which were not. In fact, we know that God told us how to identify the clean foods before Moses even wrote the Levitical laws because Noah, Noah knew which animals were clean and which animals were unclean in order to take them aboard the ark with him. Okay, what does it mean to be clean? What does it mean? Okay, all right. What does it mean to be clean? God created all of the animals with a purpose. Some, as I said, suitable for food. Some are, are not uh, for entirely different purposes. Clean, as we're using it in this sense, applies to animal flesh. It means simply fit for human consumption. The flesh of a clean animals provides good human nutrition with a low risk of disease. Unclean, then, means not appropriate for human consumption. The flesh has some natural, inherent characteristic that makes it unhealthy for human consumption. Uh, for example, consider pork. Everyone, you know, that, of, that, of all the animals, that one is probably the most pervasive. Pork, the flesh of the pig, metabolizes faster in the human being than does beef. What is the effect of that? Well, in fact, means if effectively it burns hotter. It's kind of like using high-grade jet fuel in a gasoline engine. You can get by with it for a little while, but you keep it up for a long type period of time, it'll burn out the valves. Just like in the same in the same way, eating pork for an extended period of time is going to burn out the human body in much the same way. And remember, we're not just using it for fuel. The material that we eat, uh, that we consume, also goes to form the cells of our bodies as well. All right. Okay, so what does it mean to be clean? Well, obviously Noah knew, because uh, Noah, uh, God said to Noah, Come thou and all, and all thy house into the ark, for I have seen, I have, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast you shall take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. And of the beasts that are not clean, by two, the male and the, and the female. So he took two pair each of the unclean animals and seven pair each of the clean animals. Okay? Come on. All right, now, thirdly, let us acknowledge that animal species have not changed in essence over the nearly 6,000 years since God gave us his dietary plan, contrary to anything that the evolutionary scientists may say. Rather, animals have continued to produce how? After their kind, after their kind, for generation after generation, Okay. Genesis 1, verses uh, 24 to 25. God said, let the earth bring forth living creature after its kind, cattle and creepers and beasts of the earth after its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after its kind, and the cattle after their kind, and the creepers of the earth after their kind, and God saw that it was good. So the nature of the beast hasn't changed from generation to generation to generation. So if it was unclean, when God gave us the dietary laws, it remains unclean to this day. That's clear, right? Okay. All right. Now, 
Where do we find the uh, biblical dietary laws? They're described in detail, as I've already hinted at earlier, in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. That's the two explicit places where it is described. Now, what I'm going to do in the, as we go through and discuss this, I will, make, uh, re I will read the passage from Leviticus 11 and the parallel passage from Deuteronomy 14 and then explain what it means and give you some illustrations along this one for each of the different kinds of critters. Some of these things that we have noticed here is that there are categories, classes of animals that we shouldn't even bother to eat at all, shouldn't even touch. The following classes of creatures are categorically unclean and should not be eaten by human beings. All reptiles, all amphibians, all shellfish and invertebrates, all swarming things, that includes the reptiles, the amphibians, the rodents, and the utmost insects. Those are the things that are categorically unclean. We should not include those at all. Okay. Uh, another uh, kosher exclusion, I'll call it for lack of a better term, is that although certain bugs are considered clean, most of us don't dine on insects. All right, so I shall restrict our discussion to clean beasties, clean fishies, and clean birdies. But it's good to know that if we had to eat them, there are certain bugs that we could eat and still be kosher, right? Okay, clean beasties. Let's look at our clean beasties. This is from Leviticus 11, verses 1 through 8. And Jehovah spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speaking to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the animals that you shall eat among all the animals which are on the earth. Whatever devise a hoof and has a cloven hoof, hoof <coughs> and uh, chewing the cud among the animals, that shall you eat. Only you shall not eat of these that chew the cud or that divide the hoof. For the camel uh, chews the cud but does not divide the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because he chews the cud but does not divide the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the hare, because he chews the cud but does not divide the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the swine, though he divides the hoof and his cloven foot, he does not chew the cud. Have you ever watched a pig eat? They don't really, they just swallow the food whole. Okay. Um, that's why it's dangerous to take, for pig farmers to take the slop from um, restaurants and things because they, the toothpicks and other things that get in the slop, the pig swallows that, it'll, it'll choke them, it'll cause them damage. Uh, you shall not eat of their flesh and, should not show, and you shall not touch their dead body. They are unclean to you. The corresponding passage in Deuteronomy 14 is... Uh, Deuteronomy 14, verses 2 to 8. For you are a holy people to Jehovah your God, and Jehovah has chosen you to be a peculiar people to himself. Boy, do we ever meet that criteria. Above all the nations that are on the earth. Okay, so notice there's a separation principle that's involved here. You shall not eat any abominable thing. These are the animals which you shall eat, the ox and the sheep and the goat and the hart and the gazelle and the roe deer and the wild deer and the mountain goat and the wild ox and the mountain sheep and every animal that divides the hoof and divides it into two hooves and chews the cud uh, among the animals, that shall you eat. Notice the word and in here. And and or. Little words become very, very important in scripture. Like if is the biggest little word in life, for example. All right. And and or play very important rules. In fact, I, in my uh, geometry classes and my uh, advanced math class, I teach a unit on logic, 
And in that unit on logic, we talk about the conjunction, which is one of the logical propositions. It is an and statement. It must have both characteristics in order for it to meet the characteristic. And I use the dietary laws as an illustration of it. And I get away with it. I can actually teach the dietary laws in the school system because I'm teaching it as a logical conjunction, which is really neat. All right, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. And every animal divides the hoof and divides it and chews the cud among these animals. That shall you eat. But these you shall not eat of those that chew the cud or that divide the hoof. Notice the difference between and and or. The camel and the hare and the rock badger, for they chew the cud and do not divide the hoof. They are unclean to you. And the swine, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you as well. So, what does it mean to be cloven hoof? A cloven hoof is a hoof that is divided into two parts. It is clear cut, or clear division, a clear cleft down the middle of it that makes it a two-part. And I have on the board for you the examples of sheep feet, goat feet, deer feet, and cattle or bovine feet. All of them, you see, have the nice cleft down the middle of it. You can clearly see it's in two parts, right? Contrast that with animals of the feet of unclean animals. There's a cheetah, has paws. The house cat has paws. Human hands and dog paws, both. Human hands, that's not a cloven hoof, so we're unclean animals as well. We're unclean animals. Unless you, of course, have been saved and then you're clean. I guess that's why the, the natives in South, uh, South Pacific like to, eat cannibal, uh, like to eat human missionaries or something like that because they're clean already. No, that's another story. Okay. The apaca, look at the apaca. The apaca looks like it has cloven hooves, but it doesn't really. Those are actually two toes with some long nails, a long toenail. And there's Porky, of course, and Porky's foot, of course, is cloven. Okay, there's some more feast of beasties. The mouse has almost like hands, it has uh, fingers and everything. Uh, the elephant has, uh, I think, four toes, if I remember right. The lizard has uh, almost like a hand-like critter as well. The raccoon, look at all these different things. Do you see that they're not cloven hooves? They are paws, they are uh, claws, they are something uh, that, uh, other than a hoof. They are not hooves. So that's what makes them unclean. They're also ruminants. A ruminant is anything that chews plant matter, or, or eats grass, in other words. Okay. Now, uh, all clean mammals are herbivores. That means they eat only uh, the clean, uh, they eat only grasses. Remember, whatever goes in comes out. Garbage in, garbage out. Right. So if you um, if you eat an animal that is itself eating other animals or garbage or carrion or something, that's becoming your flesh as well. But if you eat the animals that are strictly herbivores, then it's a much healthier, much more high quality uh, meat to eat. Okay, clean animals then chew the cud. They are ruminants that eat plant and have a cloven hoof that's split down the middle, creating a two-part hoof. Clean animals are strictly herbivores and do not eat meat. They, have a sing they do not have a single hoof like members of the equine family, the horse family, uh, nor do they have paws and claws like many of the other mammals do. Here on the, on the board, I have my Venn diagram that I use to teach this in my uh, geometry and advanced math classes. If you'll notice, let's see if I can get this in the work right here, in the middle are the clean. These are the animals that, ha that chew the cud. These are the animals that have the cloven hoof. 
The ones in the middle have both characteristics. So they're the clean animals. The ones that are over here, they chew the cud but do not have the cloven hoof. And the ones that are over here, the swine family, uh, are the ones that have the cloven hoof but do not chew the cud. There are others, the reptiles, the amphibians, the squirrel, the raccoon, and all the rest of those that are outside that have neither characteristic. So the Venn diagram makes it very, very clear, very visual, which animals are fit for food and which ones are not. Is it clear? Okay. Now let's go on to our next group. Or actually, let's see what happens. Because when we get to the, eat the food, we won't see whether it has the hooves or choose a cud. We're going to see it after it's already been cut up and on the plate, right? So how do you tell if it's clean or unclean after it's already on the plate? Look at the bones. The bones will tell you, rib bones in particular. Unclean animals have round bones. We have round bones. Pigs have round bones. Clean animals, such as cattle, have bones that are flat on at least one side. Did you ever notice that? Here's what a picture looks like. These are beef ribs and spare ribs. Notice that the spare ribs from the pig, whoops, back up. Get the wrong button. There we go. The, the spare ribs from the pig have round bones, but the beef ribs over here, the bones are flat on one side. You see that? So that's how you can tell if the animal is clean or unclean. Look at its rib bones when, after it's already on the plate. It also applies to birds. If you look at chicken ribs, for example, they're flat. But if you were to look at vulture uh, ribs, for example, that would be round. Okay, human beings have round bones. We're unfit. We're unclean. Okay? Uh, same thing is true for fish. Fish, the, the, the rib bones of the fish are flat if they're clean. The rib bones, if they have bones, uh, for the other sea critters, are round. Okay? Shark, for example, have round bones as opposed to the, the, uh, uh, tilapia, which is a very popular fish today, um, is clean. It does have fins and scale, but it's not the highest quality meat. So it's not the best to eat, but it, it, it is clean. Okay. Unclean beasties are mostly scavengers or predators. They are designed to clean up the environment, to eat dead things, to keep other animal populations under control. Um, because their diet is primarily carrion, garbage, or discarded flesh, their flesh contains parasites many times, particularly the trichinosis uh, parasite, um, that are not healthy for human beings if it's consumed. All right, so be very careful about what goes in. Clean sea critters. I've broadened it to sea critters. Uh, if we look at the actual passages, this one is really, really, really simple. In order for a sea critter to be clean, it must have both fins and scales. It's really that simple, both fins and scale. If it has one but not the other, not clean. If it has neither, of course, it can't be clean at all. But that means what? Any, the dietary law then would categorically prohibit all shellfish and invertebrates. Yet, if you notice, those are the entrees on the menu that are the most expensive and the most popular, aren't they? And they're not, they don't have either one of the characteristics. Most of the sea critters that are unclean, such as catfish, shark, shellfish, etc., are bottom dwellers, and they function as garbage scowls to clean up the bottom of rivers and lakes and oceans. Many consume debris, sewage, 
toxins such as mercury and other heavy metals, and so that their flesh is made from these materials. So that if we eat these creatures, we're just eating sewage secondhand. That'll make you sick enough not to eat it. Garbage in, garbage out, right? That's our rule. All right, so here are your, here are your rules uh, for the dietary laws. First, uh, I did, let me back up. Okay, uh, this one, I've got Deuteronomy up first. All right, you shall eat of all these that are in the waters that have fins and scales that shall eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales that you shall not eat, it is unclean to you. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Can't be much clearer than that. Okay, and in Leviticus, here's the, the par parallel passage. These you shall eat of all of the, uh, that are in the waters, whatever has fins and scales in the waters, in the seas and in the rivers, that shall you eat. And that has, do not have fins and scales in the seas and the rivers and all that's in the waters and any living thing that is in the waters, they are an abomination to you. They, uh, they shall even be an abomination to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, neither shall you have their carcasses and their abomination. What has no fins or scales in the water shall be an abomination to you. Again, that, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Abomination. So the, the lobster and the squid and the, the oysters. Oysters, by the way, and uh, the other animals pick up all that mercury and heavy metal poisons that we won't, don't want to eat. Clearly, this law it prohibits the uh, shellfish and the invertebrates and those that are the most popular. Here's a Venn diagram of what this one looks like. Okay, so this is not exhaustive, by the way, it's just exemplary. So, some things, for example, that have scales but do not have fins would be gar and sea snake. Things that uh, have fins but do not have uh, true scales would be catfish, sharks, swordfish, eel, things like that. The ones that have both are bass, salmon, tuna, perch, trout, crappie, uh, etc., like that. The ones that have neither are, of course, all the shellfish, including shrimp, lobster, crab, mo uh, mollusk, clam, crayfish, squid, octopus, jellyfish, Portuguese man of war, uh, snails, slugs, all water reptiles and amphibians, including frogs, um, sea mammals such as seals, walrus, sea cow, whales, dolphin, and porpoises, among other things. Okay, all of those unclean animals. <clears throat> by the way, some of those, by the way, are extremely poisonous. The box jellyfish, for example, is the most poisonous creature on earth. Okay, um, next. Uh, clean birdies. Let's look at the clean birdies. This is first of Leviticus passage. And you shall have these an abomination among the fowl. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the black vulture, the, the bearded vulture, the kite and the falcon and according to its kind. Every raven according to its kind. The ostrich and the great owl and the gull and the, and the small hawks, hawks according to their kind. The little owl and the cormorant and the uh, eared owl and the barn owl and the pelican and the oil uh, owl vulture and the stark and the heron to its kind and the whoopee and the bat. Okay, corresponding passage in Deuteronomy is, uh, you shall eat all clean birds, but these you shall not eat, the eagle and the osprey, uh, osophage and the osprey and the hawk and the falcon and the vulture after its kind and every raven after its kind, the owl and the nighthawk and the cuckoo and the hawk after its kind, the little owl and the great owl and the swan, the pelican and the owl and the cormorant and the stork and the heron after its kind, the whoopee and the bat. Okay, a lot of clean flying things, right? 
or unclean flying things. These are used more as examples or illustrations. As a general principle here, the pattern is no seabirds and no birds of prey, among other things. The characteristics that make them clean are these. And clean birds have a pointed beak from the side view and a foot configuration of three toes forward and one toe backward. I need to make one change on this one. I didn't get a chance to do it. The crow and the raven should be over here with three toes forward, one toe back, but they have a recurved beak. So I have them in the wrong slots. But basically it's the same idea. So pointed beak. Pointed beak. Uh, things that have the pointed beak are ostrich and emu and penguin and swan. Uh, uh, woodpecker, of course, would have a pointed beak as well, but they do not have three toes forward, one toe back. The one, I, the only one I could find that has the three toes forward and one toe back are the crow and the raven family. The ones that are clean: chicken, guinea hens, turkey, pheasant, quail, um, prairie hens, uh, most songbirds, duck. Notice a duck has a bill that is curved from the top view but pointed from the side view. So it still has a pointed beak. Uh, Cornish hens and geese. Now, what's on the outside? That's any scavenger bird of prey, like owls and hawks and eagles and ospreys and falcons and vultures and condors and buzzards and any seabirds, such as gulls and pelicans and flamingos, albatross, toucan family, etc. Clear? Okay, now, these are kind of hard to pick up as well. So let's take a look at some bird beaks. These are some different kinds of bird beaks that we have. See, some of them are straight and some of them are pointed, but some of them are recurved or curved or hooked even in some cases. All right. Some of them are like the um, are gibbous, which means they're, they're, you can actually have water flow through it, like the duck bill. All right. And these are bird feet. Okay. These are typical of the bird feet. Oops, wrong one. Okay, the coot mallard, mallard's a duck. Notice three toes forward, one toe back. It doesn't matter whether or not it has webbing in between. That's just to help them swim. It still has three toes forward, one toe back. The hawk has two toes forward and one kind of back on each side. Woodpecker, two forward, two back. Again, this is the talons. The grouse is a clean bird, three toes forward, one toe back. Ostrich only has two toes. So it doesn't even make the three quarter. The parrot has two toes forward, two toes back. Jackana, I don't know what that is, has three toes forward, one toe back. Crow, here's one of the ones that has three toes forward, one toe back, but it has a recurved bill, so it would not be clean. Okay. All right, this is a list, of, a partial list of the clean critters, the clean animals, and you can look into this in more detail if you need to. Uh, Lotus, we've got a huge list of sea critters that are clean, but there are others that aren't. And you want to be alert to that. Again, uh, the one that's most popular recently is the tilapia. Uh, and it, I said it is clean, it's just not high quality. However, we don't have to eat meat. Okay? Eating flesh is not required. A vegan diet is permissible. A vegan diet is permissible. Uh, and let's read what it says in 1 Corinthians 8. Verses 8 through 13. But meat commendeth not us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, or neither if we do not eat are we worse. But take uh, heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see you... Uh, 
See thee which has knowledge, sit at the meat in an idol's temple. Shall not then the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make thy brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world uh, standeth, lest I uh, offend the brother. Okay, now, be aware that it is not an issue here, uh, really, uh, whether or not to eat meat or not to eat meat, because there are, it's okay to be vegetarian. There is no requirement from God to eat meat regularly, except for the special sacrifices such as Passover. And in fact, the Genesis diet is completely vegetarian. Many people today, in, uh, such as many of the Seventh-day Adventists, are not only vegetarian, but vegan, and they remain quite healthy. But eating vegetarian or vegan uh, only is rather difficult for you have to eat certain plants in combination in order to get the complete proteins that the meat provides inherently. Now, Paul addresses this in this letter to the Corinthians, but this is not really about vegetarian or not vegetarian meat. This is about eating the uh, things that are sacrificed to idols. That's the real issue that's at, uh, at stake here. <coughs> the real issue was being sure not to eat the things that are sacrificed to idols. And those who had the knowledge that the idols were not real gods, they could have eaten the meat when it not offended them. But someone who's weak in faith might see this action and be tempted to eat the things from the sacrifice to the idols. So Paul advises us, don't eat the meat. Okay. All right, so let's, another issue. All right, now the Jewish dietary laws what it means to eat kosher. Kosher, of course, means clean. And that, uh, this, the, the whole system of laws they have is called kashrut, K-A-S-R-U-T. Uh, since eating flesh is not required, and a vegan or vegetarian diet is quite permissible, if we do choose to eat the flesh, then we have to make sure that we do it in the right process. Not only do we have to choose the right animals, but we have to do the right process for the dietary concern. That includes the method of slaughter, the circumstances of his death, the age of the individual, the cuts of the meats of the organ, and the preparation techniques. Okay, there's also a prohibition against eating blood or fat. Okay, doesn't mean I can't eat them, my steak rare, but you know, I, I can still cook it with a flashlight if I want to. <laughs> All right. But uh, there is a prohibition against eating blood, so no blood puddings and no fat. All right, uh, Leviticus 7, verses 23 to 27 lets us know that. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall um, eat no manner of fat of an ox or the sheep or the goat. Notice those are all clean animals, but you still don't want to eat the fat of that. And, uh, and the fat of the beast of the diet of itself or the fat of that which is torn with the beast can be used for any other purpose, but you shall not eat of it. For what... Who's, Whosoever eateth the fat of the beast of which men uh, offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, even that soul that eateth it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, she shall eat no matter of blood, whether it be fowl or beast, for in any of your dwellings. Uh, whatsoever souls it shall be that, that eateth any manner of blood, that soul shall be cut off from his people. All right, so blood and fat are out. In fact, God said, I want the fat for myself. So he insists that you burn up the fat on the altar and it provides a sweet savor to the God. He's really trying to protect our health in the process. 
Okay. Now. All right. Um, kashrut, as I said, is the body of Jewish law that deals with what foods can and cannot be eaten and how those foods must be prepared. This is too small to read, so I'll read it here to you. There are seven major points. The first three are valid from the Torah, uh, but the uh, last three uh, aren't. The middle one is kind of dubious. Certain animals may not be eaten at all. This restriction includes the flesh, the organs, the eggs, the milk of the for, uh, food, forbidden animals. And... Um, the animals that may be eaten, the birds and mammals must be killed in accordance with Jewish law and drained properly. All blood must be drained from the meat and broiled out of it before it is eaten. Certain parts of the permitted animal, organs in particular, may not be eaten. Uh, in tr strictly Jewish tradition, uh, only the front part of the cow can be eaten. The hindquarters cannot, for example. Uh, meat, the flesh of birds and mammals, cannot be eaten with dairy. Neutral foods known as pareh include fish, eggs, fruit, vegetables, grains, and their derivatives. Since they are considered neither meat nor dairy, they can be eaten with either meat or dairy, according to uh, some, though the fish cannot be eaten with meat. Utensils that have come in, in contact with uh, meat may not be used with dairy and vice versa. Utensils that have contact with, come in contact with non-kosher foods may not be used with kosher foods. And this applies only though when the contact with the food was hot. Huh? That sounds like an, an strange exception to me. And great products made by non-Jews cannot be eaten. That sounds very political. If, uh, great products made by non-Jews may not be eaten. Huh. Okay, so here's the main thing that we have to worry about on this one. One that's brought up from this one. This is a conflict between what is in the written tradition of the Torah and the oral tradition of the Mishnah Torah. The, uh, the Yiddish words fleshy, fleshig, which means meat, and milchig, which means dairy, and parev, or neutral, are commonly used to describe the foods and the utensils that are in these categories. The Mishnah Torah, which is the oral Torah, part of the Talmud, uh, includes a strict prohibition against mixing fleshic and milchic, or the vessels in which they're prepared. The tradition comes from an extension of the separation principle of the, of the rabbis and a misreading of the dietary law that says, come out from her, my people. Truly, God chose Israel and later the church to be uh, separate from the world and an example to it. But the rabbis extended this principle to food as a daily reminder of their uniqueness by requiring a separation of meat and dairy products not to be eaten within six hours of one another. This is a tradition from the Talmud, though, not from Torah. It is strictly a rabbinical teaching. <coughs> Okay, it's based upon three scriptures, essentially. Um, it's based upon three scriptures and a misreading of these that instruct us not to see the kid in his mother's milk. They are Exodus 23, 19, which says, The first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of Jehovah your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Genesis 34, 26, The first of the first fruits of... In, in, in your land you shall bring to the house of Jehovah your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Deuteronomy 14, 21, you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You shall give it to the stranger. Okay, it's okay to give someone else this, and they can eat it, but you don't eat it, okay? 
you shall eat, give it to the stranger that's in your gate so that he may eat it, or you may sell it to the stranger. For you are a holy people uh, to Jehovah your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Did you catch the error? Did you catch the error? In all three of these loans references, they're the only ones that are mentioned these things together, the prohibition is not against cooking meat in any milk, but specifically in his mother's milk. Did you see that? It's against in his mother's milk. Contrary to what it may appear at first reading, this phrase does not provide cooking instructions, but rather is a metaphor for a young animal not yet weaned. That's what it's really talking about. That's what it's really talking about. If there's a prohibition here, it is the prohibition against eating veal or mutton, against the wanton killing of young animals before they've had the opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which God placed them here, to grow and to reproduce and provide food for man. That's the real blasphemy. Okay? It is a blasphemous tradition. I say that because of this. The Talmud reads these three verses as a prohibition against mixing meat and dairy, more than a prohibition against the slaughter of, un of unweaned animals. But consider which animals are used for sacrifice. A lamb of the first year, a kid, a young bullock, doves. The concept of sacrifice implies a loss, specifically the loss of the offspring of the sacrificed animal. If eating veal and mutton were to become commonplace, then we would become desensitized to the death of the young animal and to the value of the sacrificial animal becomes cheapened by extension. In turn, Christ's sacrifice becomes cheapened. On the other hand, a prohibition against the slaughter of the innocent makes us realize the value of the sacrificed animal and realize our guilt in his death. I am running short. Okay, I, uh, I will mention this in... First, it is not logical. If you have two clean foods that are good by themselves, what would make them unclean by eating them together? Duh, that just doesn't make sense, does it? Okay. Um, I'm going to just summarize some of this. So it's not logical to do that. All right. Second, there are two good, solid, biblical counterexamples to do it. I'm, in the interest of time, I will summarize these. All right, the first one is uh, the occasion where uh, Abraham offered a meal to God and his two companions on the road. And guess what that meal consisted of? Look at Genesis 18, 1 through 8. I'll read the part that's relevant here. And Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready, quickly, three measures of fine meal needed in the make cake. And Abraham ran out to the herd and bought a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man. He hurried to dress it. And he took, what? Butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. He's presenting dairy and meat before God as a meal offering. You wouldn't do that if that were against the rules, would you? Okay. And they ate. So they had no objection to eating that. Another example. One more of these. Um, David eats meat and dairy together. This is in 2 Samuel uh, 17, verses 27 to 29. 
It happened when David came to Mahanaim, uh, Shobi, the son of Nehash of Rabbah, the son of Amon, the maker of the son of Amiel. Okay, bought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and roasted grain and beans and lentils and other roasted food and honey and butter and sheep and cheese from cows. Again, meat and dairy here together for David and for the people with him to eat and for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Okay, so this prohibition against mixing meat and dairy is not scriptural. It is not biblical. All right. Uh, there's two troublesome passages, Peter's visions, of course, and Paul's exhortation, but I don't have time to get to them today. Uh, I'll have to that some other time. If you want to more extensive reading on this one, we have a printout over here on um, some our foods unfit to eat. So wrapping things up here. Contrary to what the the, the prohibition though in in the case of Timothy was not against eating meats uh, that God had created to be was uh, created to be received with uh, with thanksgiving. It was against the Catholic tradition. More, which later became a Catholic tradition, I should say, um, of prohibiting you from eating clean animals. It wasn't against allowing you to eat unclean animals. It was a prohibition against eating clean animals during certain seasons of the year. So that's the source of the problem with the uh, passage in 1 Timothy 1. So... God has provided a bountiful table with much variety. As our maker, he knows what is good for us and what is detrimental and has told us how to tell the difference. Those who will follow his guidelines, who will obey the law, but uh, we should. But, but the Jewish prohibition against eating meat and dairy together has no basis in the written word of God. For if it did, the ramifications would be unpalatable, let's say. For not only would it mean no more meat and cheese sandwiches, like including Rubens and, che and cheeseburgers. It would also eliminate all Cajun, uh, including even my modified versions, most Italian, almost all Mexican, most French, much Southern, uh, American Southern cooking, consider all the cream gravies and the batters and things of that nature. Even steaks served with creamed or baked potato if the potato has butter or sour cream or cheese on it. All right. To all of us who like food, and I think everyone in this congregation does, this is some serious stuff. Especially for our group, who plans its trips around where we're going to eat. Right? Let us rejoice in God's diet plan and not be confused by all the misguided reasoning of men. Anyone for cheeseburgers? <laughs>